Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Well, hello. I am Chris Dyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Facts. Welcome to El Inkstained Retros, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, did I overhear that you have recently hosted a child's birthday party? Oh, it was actually a while back, but we were just catching up. What was the nature of the what did you, it was did you a... how, how lavishly did you entertain? How, how old is your daughter? She turned two. So how lavishly did you entertain the toddlers? We we really went all out because first birthday was a disaster. Oh, and why? So it what just stunk. It just uh, wasn't. It didn't. So we did. A, we had a little petting zoo for everyone. I was gonna suggest the petting yes. zoo. I love the mobile petting zoo. What did they have? What was their best animal? I thought the piglet would be the mm. best, but I actually think that the more manageable, slow-moving animals, like maybe the turtle and the lizard, were. Did you spring the for the pony? Oh, no, no, no. This was inside my house. Oh, you had an I'm, inside Yes, we had everything zoo? inside because it was in late January. Wow. So we're, we're really just catching up. Indoor indoor petting zoo. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's I've, I've not been there. But I was a big fan of, of goofy, big birthday or other celebrations. My youngest man child has, has his birthday in October. And for his, when he was young, we got an oompa band. What's that? An oompa band is a I'm German look, is a it. German kind of it's not polka, it's oompa. Oh. And were there <laughs> were there baby lederhosen? Yeah, there were. There were How t- old was he? I want to say 3, 2 or so 3. So he didn't he didn't request this? No, no, I inflicted it. I 100% inflicted an oompa band on him and provided the parents with beer, delicious German beer. And had an oompa band for his October birthday. And I regret nothing. I regret nothing. Why not? Knock yourself out. Knock yourself out. That's what I say. You want to bring the tortoise and the hare in your living room? I'm for that. I'm for whatever. Might as well let it rip. Our front page this week. We're starting with 2024. Seems like it's it's as the American voting public would say, it seems like we can't get out of it. We have a good piece yeah. in the Atlantic by McKay Coppins. Yep. Why attacks on Trump's mental acuity don't land. And McKay Coppins writing in the Atlantic was he re he retells the story of his famous slash infamous piece that he wrote about Donald Trump in the twenty sixteen cycle where he was had been granted an interview with Trump in New Hampshire and the interview the schedule got changed and Trump took McKay Coppins to Mar-a-Lago instead and Coppins flew down and then wrote a biting piece about his time with Trump and to Coppins credit said you know I I got a lot of it right the one thing I got wrong was saying that Donald Trump will never really run. He's not really going to do this. And was it 26? It may have even been 2012, 2014. Okay. So it was in between. So it was, he said, Trump's never going to run, but here's the story of Donald Trump. And Coppins was prescient, right? He was right about a lot of the things that have become very normal about Trump. And the point that he's making here is a very good one. As Democrats say, oh yeah, well, Biden is uh, senile. Well, so's Trump. Look at Trump, his mental acuity, blah, 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 blah. Donald Trump has been preposterous. And by the way, some of Trump's Republican rivals yes. made these attacks as well. You know, DeSantis had, a, had a whole yeah. Twitter thread that had videos of Trump's verbal flubs. It was something we asked about in the debate. Yep. And Nikki Haley has said, you know, we need to have... Acuity tests, mental tests for politicians, she, for both she candidates. Lumps, she lumps them together she and says, calls them both 80-year-olds. So, exactly. Exactly. But I, the moment for me when I realized that 
Trump was being held to a different standard by the electorate and the media was, you know who Carl Icahn was? Of course. Okay. So most Americans don't know who Carl Icahn was, especially at a outdoor Trump rally at a football stadium in Mobile, Alabama. But Trump was doing a rally in Mobile, Alabama, and he's talking and he starts riffing on something Carl Icahn told him. Carl Icahn, of course, one of the uh, merger kings of the 1970s and 1980s, most famous slash infamous for the uh, TWA takeover, uh, which was sort of the the template for the movie Wall Street, where they buy the airline, strip it for parts and blah, 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 blah. He also and I thought, had a high profile throwdown with Bill Ackman over yes. Herbalife and whether Herbalife was a pyramid scheme so, that he was victorious so in. So as, as Trump is riffing and talking and he gets to Carl Icahn, I thought, boy, talk about read the room. What do a, what do a bunch of concert kind of going with a monster truck rally energy at this Alabama stadium want to hear about Carl Icahn? They didn't care. They applauded. They cheered. Because Trump is like performance art. It's just, it's all, it, it's the, the, the Jackson Pollock nature of Trump's logoria is if you, it, there's enough in it that you can always, if you want to, if you want to like him and you want to agree with him, he'll just talk until he says something that you're like, okay, that, yeah, okay, that. I don't know who Carl Icahn is, but I like the thing he said about rapists and murderers from Mexico and moving on. Coppins writes, there's a simple reason coverage of verbal flubs, memory lapses, and general octogenarian confusion is more damaging to Biden than it is to Trump. Biden ran for president on a platform of stability and competence, and that image is undermined by suggestions of mental decline. Word. Accusing Trump of going crazy doesn't work because, well, he has sounded crazy for a long time. The people who voted for him don't seem to mind. In fact, it's part of the appeal. I would also add they're two different things, crazy and right. and mental decline. And when you're talking about mental acuity and mental decline and a race for president that's between two parties and you're naturally naturally comparing the two, it is obvious that Biden is suffering from mental decline more than Trump is. Well, if the question is who is who is a more dangerous person to have as president, which is basically the narrative that is set up by both. Right. The what both parties are leaning into is the idea of, yes, it would be dangerous for this person to be president, but it would be more dangerous for the other person to be president. And if I was a Democrat, I would not be comfortable in getting into a race to the bottom with Donald Trump because that is his that that's his milieu. That's that's where he that's where he operates. That's where he thrives. Up next. Oh, oh. This should we debated been, should this be been in facile files? files. Yep. It really probably should be, but it's a good way to talk about Nikki Haley, who delivered a speech earlier this week, which I think most people, when they heard she was delivering a speech on the state of the race ahead of the South Carolina primary, anticipated that she would be announcing the termination of her campaign. But instead, she said the opposite that she is going to. Stay in this race. She's until... not going to kiss the ring. Yeah. She doesn't care. Let it burn. And it, it sounded sincere and it sounds like probably maybe she's having a little fun. Maybe she's having a little fun. Yeah. And the South Carolina, the South Carolina. I knew that Haley was having some effect when the Trump team started pushing delegate math. Donald Trump does not need to push delegate math. Right. Like he doesn't. It's just not it's it's not a necessary argument to make when the person closest to you, their towering achievement in the first two contests was to to lose by only 11 points. I wouldn't be talking about delegate math and how that even if Haley does as well as she says she wants to, which is to get, what, what did she get, Nate, in New Hampshire? 43%, 42%, 44 So low, for, low, low to mid 40s, that even if she were to do that, uh, that, that Trump would still clinch in late March. And you're like, well, you know, maybe don't take the bait. But anyway, also taking the bait was Michael Cranish, reporter for The Washington Post, in a piece headlined, Haley's nearly all-white high school lacked lessons of racism, comma, some say, comma, some say. Some say that Haley's nearly all-white high school lacked lessons of racism. 
I love the. And you know who wasn't white in Nikki Haley's high school? Who? Nikki Haley. Oh, so you're saying you're saying that it might have been more challenging in some ways because she was one of the few non-white students. I don't know the comma there and the some say. I mean, how do you argue with comma some say some say? This paragraph, to be educated at Orangeburg Prep was to, quote, swim in the current of the way whites thought and were taught, said <laughs> Catrice Schuler, the valedictorian of Orangeburg's 1989 class, mm. who recalls sitting through classes with Haley. Quote, it could be very easy for someone to go through the school system, the private school system, and feel that, oh, racism isn't a problem because they haven't been negatively affected by it, said Schuler, who is white. Oh. Neither Haley nor officials at Orangeburg Prep responded to questions from the Washington Post about her time at the school, and thus it could not be determined what she was taught there. So we have no idea what she was taught at this high school. The governor who took down the Confederate flag after a African-Americans were massacred in a church by a white nationalist, you know, probably doesn't know anything about racism. She wasn't taught anything about it. She doesn't know anything about it. Quote, Nikki Haley is the most shrewd, talented politician in the country. She is not racist by any stretch, said former state representative Bakari Sellers, a Democrat who is black and grew up in Bamberg County and whose father was among those wounded in the Orangeburg massacre. But she knows better. Either you are wholly ignorant, which she is not, or you're intellectually dishonest for the purpose of political gain. I don't know if anywhere in the piece they point out that Bakari Sellers is also a CNN, was also a longtime CNN contributor and bomb thrower. But the I, no disrespect to Nikki Haley, but I do not believe that Nikki Haley is the most shrewd politician in the United States. I think that is probably a stretch. And I do think that Nikki Haley has a problem about and she replicated it with her answer on there's a case in Alabama. The Alabama Supreme Court said that fertilized embryos cannot be destroyed, basically. They're human beings. That, that because, because of their status as, as human life, that people are subject to lawsuit. Institutions are subject to lawsuit and potentially prosecution for the destruction of human embryos, which is a necessary component to IVF because they don't use them all. And Nikki Haley, in her response, she was talking to NBC News, and in her response to this, she said, those are babies to me. And then later had to clean it up and say, well, what I meant was my children were born through IVF, and that's how I see it, and this is emotionally freighted for me. I'm not siding with the Alabama Supreme Court and all of that stuff. I think the problem that Haley has, whether America is not a racist country or when asked about the causes of the Civil War, she is not shrewd enough, right, to to disagree with Mr. Sellers. She is not shrewd enough. Her calculation is insufficient, right? So as she runs the little ticker in her brain about where do I want to pander here, she she doesn't let the tape run far enough to get to, okay, these are the perils that I have to navigate in this space between pro-lifers and persuadable voters and figuring out the path. But this was, I have to say, could be a all-star facile file, but and especially clocking in at what looks like 5,000 words, 4,000 words, and the premise of it being because Nikki Haley went to a mostly white school as a non-white person, she doesn't understand racism is... The fact that she's not white is just a minor side yeah, in the piece. because. Right. What does she know about racism, having been one of the only non-white people to attend an overwhelmingly white school? What does she know? Just beautiful. Way to go. Trump revealing oh, this his is VP so shortlist. This is so DeSantis, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, Kirstie Nome, Byron Donalds, and Tulsi Gabbard. How, how, did the, how did he come up with the shortlist? How did he, he, how did he get to the shortlist? He says... On Fox News is the Ingram angle. He was asked about a half dozen potential running mate choices. Are they all on your short list? Host Laura Ingram asked the former president. They are, Trump answered. Honestly, all of those people are good. They're all good. They're all solid. Now, Trump did not make a short list. He didn't make any kind of a short list. Uh, 
And if and if if Laura Ingram had said, what about Cat Turd? What about Tucker Carlson? What about Vladimir Putin? What about any there's any any list of names that he could have put forward? What about the baby who a baby Jessica who was trapped in the well? Are they on your VP shortlist? What would Donald Trump have said? He would have said, honestly, Cat Turd, all of those people are very good people. They're all good. They're all solid. The the idea that the the Veep stakes coverage around Trump is pretty preposterous. And we've talked about before, like you have Elise Stefanik trying very, very hard. And she, by the way, I observe, has gone through a a, a reno. There's been a, a makeover. Her she has a, a much more glamorous look now, I observe in her and her appearances. This should be in our style section. It's true, the style the, the Veep style. But the idea that we can cover Donald Trump's Veep stakes and shortlist in the way that we traditionally did, right? Because there was a process before, whatever. Donald Trump will have 50 shortlists and it will change and change and change and change. So that, that, just, that just tickled me because it's like, what about these six people? Sure. Whatever. Whatever, Laura. I, what, what do They're you want? They're all me? good people. They're all good people. There are good people on both sides. And uh, all good people. Yeah, they're all good people. And moving on to the next question, Laura, thanks so much. Who's not on the VP shortlist? Commander. Commander remains off the VP shortlist. And kudos to CNN for doing doing the work, putting in the work on getting to the bottom of a story that we've frequently covered here, which is the aggression of the Biden's dog commander. Who it was expletive. <laughs> well, maybe commanders just misunderstood. I mean, 24 incidents of biting Secret Service officers and CNN notes that number does not include additional incidents. CNN is previously reported involving executive residence staff and other White House workers. But the new documents obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request reveal the extent to which the situation had become a serious workplace issue for the hundreds of staff supporting White House operations and how agency personnel changed their habits to avoid being injured by the German shepherds. And this is what they found in their FOIA. The recent dog bites have challenged us to adjust our operational tactics when commander is pleasant. Present, please give lots of room. An unnamed assistant special agent in charge of USSS Presidential Protective Division wrote to their team in a June 2023 email warning that agents, quote, must be creative to ensure our own personal safety. The president and first lady care deeply about the safety of those who work at the White House and those who protect them every day, despite additional dog training, leashing, working with veterinarians and consulting with animal behaviorists. The White House environment simply proved too much for commander. Since the fall, he has lived with other family members. Elizabeth Alexander, First Lady Jill Biden's communications director, said in a statement provided to CNN, the incidents involving commander were treated as workplace injuries with events documented in accordance with Secret Service and U.S. Department of Homeland Security guidelines. Talk about a bad dog. Talk that when the Department of Homeland Security has to issue reports on your dog, this is why I don't No offense and we'll probably get hate mail. Why German Shepherds? I don't, they're noble dogs and they're great workers. The Secret Service itself you, employs I mean, German Shepherds. If you're, you know, Heinrich Himmler in oh, 1942 oh, or something. Oh, 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 oh Commander. He's yes, just, very loyal dogs. He's just. To the Reich. <laughs> oh, Commander's just trying to do his job. He just was put in the wrong place. Get a get a beagle like Linda Johnson, or get a Scotty dog like the Bushes, or what did the the, the Obamas? What stuffed had animal did the Obamas have? That the Portuguese the pond, water dog. Water dog. Yes, I was going to say a pond dog. The por the Portuguese water dog. Get a nice dog. Get a. I'm I'm always here. Ugh. How about a corgi? That was my family dog, and you were a my corgi sister family? has one. Yeah, oh. my sister has one now. Well, is the Queen of England? Um, and I am. That corgi would be biting people. My you, sister's corgi is a little. Really? Yeah. Oh, so maybe not a corgi. Maybe, maybe, you remember, you're too young for this. But, the, but he's very good with my daughter, so. Remember the Clintons had a, had a cat? 
No. They got a cat named Socks. Oh, yes. I remember and they, that. And they, tr- they tried to like get by on that. And then post Lewinsky, they got a dog named Buddy, who I believe was very much on brand for the 1990s, a Labrador. And then they had to get him fixed, which, of course, was a no end to Bill Clinton jokes when his dog Buddy was fixed. If only they could have done it for the president. On to Elon. Oh, this guy. This guy. It's wild. It's wild. I have a different take. Okay. So this piece from Media, I, you are dead to me. Twitter files journalist Matt Taibbi posts unhinged messages from Elon Musk. Okay. And Mediaite reports that the journalist Matt Taibbi has accused Musk of restricting his account. And he posted screenshots from a conversation they had nearly a year prior. Since at Elon Musk published parts of these conversations, I might as well include others, declared Taibbi on Thursday. I was under a blanket search ban at one point, and a lot of my 1.9 million followers still don't see my content. In the messages dated April 2023, Taibbi could be seen asking Musk whether he was being shadow banned following Musk's crackdown on Substack, which Taibbi writes for. And... In the messages, Elon says to Taibi, you are dead to me. Please get off Twitter and just stay and just stay on Substack. And he says, looks like there is still a blanket search ban should be fixed by tomorrow. Going forward, tweets with Substack will not appear in for you unless it is paid advertising, just like Facebook, Instagram, etc. And. So he he does he is cracking down on Substack posts. Mm-hmm. Then he tells Taibi, "You're dead to me." So and and by the way, Elon has had falling outs with a lot of the people who covered the Twitter files. Right. I think he had he had a falling out with Barry Weiss. Is that he had a right? fa- yes, he had a falling out with Taibi. My take on this is just Elon is a total genius, and personal relationships are not really his thing. And I'm I'm just totally unsurprised by all of this. Well. Um, he's crazy. He and he. But he's also a genius. To my knowledge, he has not impregnated Matt Taibbi's wife, so Matt Taibbi should be glad that he's getting off easy compared to some of Musk's associates. I, I when the Twitter files came out, the criticism, the rightful criticism of the Twitter files was, this is hand selected. This is they that the that Taibbi and Barry Weiss it's not like they were given full access but that they got what they got and I think reported accurately on the stuff that they had and but that it wasn't probably a full picture but that it was a curated experience from Musk who was trying to cast himself in the best possible light and cast the previous owners of Twitter in the worst possible light I just I I feel like I feel like Maybe Elon Musk is a genius. I don't know. I just, I, I just he definitely is. I don't know. I don't know what he is, but I feel like he, he is. There is way too much focus on Elon Musk, and I think the idea, I think Twitter rots people's brains to such an extraordinary degree that there were there was the doomsaying of Twitter. Twitter is dead now that Elon Musk has taken over, and then there were the people who said. Elon Musk will right the wrongs and Twitter will finally be what it's supposed to be. And you know what Twitter has been since Elon Musk took over? Better in some ways, worse in others. And it's just, it's hard and it's complicated and I don't know. I I think Twitter has, my experience of using it has mm-hmm. gotten probably less pleasant yeah. since Musk took over it, took it over. But I think... What he's doing in terms of the the service for free speech and the principles he's standing up for, I think, is valuable in that sense. And so I don't care about Twitter that much. So I'm perfectly willing to suffer the less pleasant user experience. And I think where Taibbi ended up with Musk is that it's a business, right? Exactly. It's a business. It was a it was a business decision for Musk to give Taibbi access. It's a business for Elon Musk to restrict the speech of people. It was it's a business and platform like the idea that Twitter would ever be or any place would ever be a total free speech, total free speech safe zone was preposterous when it was first offered. 
and has proven to be untrue. Oh, this, this excellent piece. And I don't get to say it as much as I used to get to say it, but this really good piece in the Wall Street Journal. Jerry uh, Baker. Yeah, editorial page, this piece from Jerry Baker. A headline, The Moral Blindness of Putin's Apologist on the Right. They have embraced the moral equivalence that used to define the self-loathing left-wing elites. The, he writes, it's easy to mock the credulousness of some grown-ups who travel abroad and, like a high school exchange student, wax lyrical about Baroque subway stations and demonstration, demonstrate a lack of understanding of exchange rates. But we have a deeper problem that publicity-hungry provocateurs on ill-time pilgrimage than publicity-hungry provocateurs on ill-time pilgrimages. A large part of the American right actively embraces the moral equivalence that used to be a defining feature of self-loathing left-wing elites. Now, as I was talking about last week, I don't think it's a left problem or a right problem. I think it's a human problem. But the amount of denigrating America that I have heard of late is really something. And both parties or loud voices on the left and the right tell me constantly what a hellhole this nation is. I hear it all the time. And it seems like I turn one direction and I hear that America is a disaster and a failure and Russia is better and China's better and the authoritarian states are better and Hungary's better and blah, blah, blah. All these, you know, these second world nations, basically. And I'm like, boy, those guys are really down on America. What a what a bunch of yahoos. And then I look over at the left and I say, what do you guys think about America? Oh, it's a racist hellhole. It's a pit of despair in which people are being con in which Nikki Haley's experiences of racism are insufficient to address the depth of racism in the United States, in which the every everything is is a disaster. And like, I get it. I understand why. There's truth in what both of those perspectives say, but like have some freaking pride in your country and have some appreciation for context and read a book like ye. There was another excellent piece, Chris, in National Review by Jeff Blahart. We have to talk about Tucker and he writes about this phenomenon and about Tucker's short video clips that he did visiting a Moscow grocery store. And he says, when, when not engaging in a quasi-sexual relationship with bread or mar <laughs> marveling at all these style coin-operated shopping carts, nothing says robust and thriving civic order like that perfect emblem of a low-trust society, the coin-operated shopping cart. He boasts of spending only 100 U.S. dollars on a week's worth of groceries. This is fine for an American abroad in Russia, but significantly less so for actual Russians, 60% of whom spend half their monthly income on food alone. In a non sequitur for the ages, this display of luxury priced mediocrity inspires Carlson to his bluntest denunciation yet. Coming to a Russian grocery store at the heart of evil and seeing what things cost and how people live, it will radicalize you against our leaders. That's how I feel anyway. Radicalized. We're not making any of these up that about any of this up, by the way, not at all. I wish I could say I was, Blair, Blair writes. And he, then he says, why in God's name is all of this happening? What sequence of events has brought once bow-tied CNN, MSNBC, Fox Cable News veteran Tucker Carlson to the point of recording Walter Durante-esque buzz clips advertising the cleanliness and late 20th century amenities of Putin's Moscow? Some would argue this is merely the most recent and appalling example of end-stage audience camp capture where Carlson, known for an unquenchable desire for relevance, found himself chasing an increasingly narrow audience by adopting their obsessions as his own. Word. He And then he says, I'm not so sure, however. And he, he essentially ends, it goes on to say, it's hard to divine the true motivations of people who you don't know and he's, and that you have to take people at your word that Tucker is genuinely anti-American now and willing to present propagandistic lies about an evil regime if it helps in any way to make his larger point. And then he says, you know, we are, <laughs> I suspect the Council of Vonnegut may bear remembering. We are what we, we pretend to be, so yes. we should be careful about what we pretend to be. Amen. And I do, that struck me because I do think Tucker has spent so long embodying this Yes. nationalist, anti-establishment character. And 
that he has truly come to believe the things he is saying. What we present to the world shapes who we are underneath, right? The 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 fictive personas that people in the media present to the world, right? We can't be our authentic selves. We can't share the things that we said before we record on Ink Stained Wretches when we record Ink Stained Wretches for a variety of reasons. But the reasons are rooted in the idea that we want to be good and decent and we want to be we want to appear nicer and less profane <laughs> than we actually are. So, yeah, I love that Vonnegut quote and I think it's really true. And I just I would further say obsession with the end of things with the with the coming apocalypse is very dangerous for people. My colleagues at News Nation did a report on the survival bunkers of the mega rich and uh, slept in one of these hidey holes in a, you know, South Dakota yeah. field or whatever and did all that stuff. You know, thinking about the end of times, the the challenge, I, uh, speaking as a Christian, the challenge that Christians who believe that the the this world will end and the kingdom of heaven will come is how do you live each day like the today might be the last but at the same time, live in a way that you're going to live forever. How do you hold those? How do you hold those two seemingly contradictory, and those in some ways actually contradictory, uh, ideas in your head at the same time? But once you give in to the idea, right, that it's over, America is over, everything is over, it's all over. Once you do that, you create a permission structure to just be the worst, right? Because if if it's all over. And we don't have to worry anymore about putting the pieces back together. We can just smash and smash and smash instead of trying to say, okay, like as I, as I tell young radicals when I, when I talk to them, hey guys, I'm just trying to get another, I need to get another 50 years out of this thing, right? I need to get my kids a decent shot so that they can live long enough in a free, prosperous society to have their turn to be in charge, right? It's our turn to be in charge now. You're, are you? Are you 40 yet? Well, I'm not asking. 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 But for people in our middle years, this is our turn, right? And I just need this. I need Western civilization to stay on the road long enough for my sons and your daughter and Colin's daughter, son, sorry, to get their shot, right? I need them to, I need them to get their shot. And that's, that's all, that's all I'm in this for. I can't, I can't be a custodian of all time, but what I can do is do my best so that 50 years from now, another generation has a chance to keep the American experiment going. It's all I'm looking for. Ross Douthat, by the way, my American Enterprise Institute colleague, an excellent writer, is, speaking of Christians, a Roman Catholic, and he is an enthusiastic Roman Catholic, and wrote an excellent piece on the media and audience capture and all of these factors for the New York Times. And he brings a ecclesiastical lens to this question, writing, big institutions are good for legibility. In my youth, you could still read a few newspapers, subscribe to a few key magazines and political journals, watch a few news programs, and basically have your finger on the pulse of what both elite America and mass America thought was happening at any given moment. In a similar way, as a writer who often covers religion, I've often found it much easier to limb trends and important developments within my own hierarchical and centralized Catholic Church. And when I'm writing about Protestantism, it's easier to cover debates within the Southern Baptist Convention or the Episcopal Church than make definitive statements about the entirety of what we call evang evangelicism and or Pentecostalism. And his he brings a it's a it's a, it was a very helpful way for me to think about the problems in our business. Because what Ross says is basically, welcome to the non-denominational, post-denominational world of media in which you don't have hierarchies so that you can look for the brand, right? So one of the reasons that I like being part of a denomination is that I know that what are the rough standards to which the Anglican church in America is going to hold itself. I wasn't an Anglican when I went to my church, but I'm glad to be a member of that church. And it's fine, right? I am an ethnic Presbyterian who has found a happy home in the Anglican church. And that's great. But I like that part of it. And I thought his analogy is really, really good 
about how if we're all icing our own cupcake, right, the way that non-denominational churches do. So you see a church that looks like a gymnasium or a, a recreation center on the side of the road. You look at the name and they always have names that are like Grace Church, or sometimes they have names that are like kind of hipstery names, you know, like Grace Point or, you know, whatever. And they, what's the one in California, the big one in California? It's, yeah. Well, Hillsong or Saddleback. Saddleback. And, and That's you're what like, I was thinking of. Is this a, a clothing line or like, what is it? And what are you guys about in here? And the only way to find out what they're about in there is to go. And so I thought this was just an excellent comparison to a non-denominational, very, very wise, very wise, good, good, well-written, good to read, helpful in my thinking. Chris, that, oh, no, no, we have this A.G. Salzberger oh, yeah. interview with yeah. the Reuters Institute. Yes. This, I would just commend, I will not, it is, as uh, uh, Colin said, T-L-D-R. Uh, it is, it is a very long piece, but it is a very frank piece in which he talks about how the New York Times works, how the New York Times doesn't work, and and basically what how he sees it. Sulzberger says the following, I think it's really dangerous for an independent general interest news organization to chase a particular audience segment. That mindset leads to one to distort coverage, especially in this highly polarized moment. Winning over a group too often means showing deference to that group's narrative. And if an independent organization does that, it's the most it's the most damaging thing they can do. So we don't think about audience in that way. We try to offer the very best journalism in a bunch of broadly important topics like the war on Ukraine, the conflict in Gaza, the U.S. election, human rights in China and India. These are not necessarily all trending topics, but they are important. We do have a lot of confidence that the public wants to be confronted not with the information they think they want, but with the information they didn't know they wanted. My grandfather had this old line, when you buy the New York Times, you're, bu you're not buying news, you're buying judgment. That judgment is a really important part of our promise. Then on the other hand, we are trying to win the handful of big spaces. Our sports coverage is coming from the Atlantic, which we think is the athletic, which we think is the largest newsroom of sports journalists in the world, certainly in the English language. So we're not chasing a particular demographic beyond people interested in sports, which is a pretty broad swath of planet Earth. Now, some of the things that he've said are a little, it's a reach. Some of it's a reach, but to your previous point about what we pretend to be, these are good things to pretend to be, even if they fall short of the mark frequently on some of these things. All the new, the Sulzbergers, people, I don't know whether people know this, but the New York Times slogan that those Sulzbergers great-grandfather? Yes. Sulzbergers great-grandfather, when he bought the paper, all the news that's fit to print was a relatively radical statement for that point in the 19th century, because what were the papers of those days? Highly, highly partisan, highly, 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 highly partisan. They were house organs of various parties and factions. And you had to get to get the news. You had to look at it in through a glass darkly. Right. You had to say like, oh, OK, so if this is what the Democrats are saying, if this is what the Republicans are saying, if this is what it, then then where, where is the truth? It was challenging. And the Sulzberger idea of we're just going to print all the news without a, a specific party loyalty, they have missed the mark many times in the intervening 150 years or 140 years or whatever, but it is a good thing to pretend to be. Chris, that brings us to our facile file. Mm. And this is like if, if you who could found have, this? If which you one could have you, created which, a facile file. Who found this Bloomberg piece? That was Colin. Cookie. That was Cookie. Bloomberg writes, Climate change is fueling a new type of anxiety, therapists say. Mm, ther comma, therapists say. This is some say. Now we have comma, therapists say. Bloomberg writes, in the most critical cases, climate anxiety disrupts the ability to function day to day. Children and young people in this category feel alienation from friends and family, distress when thinking about the future, and intrusive thoughts about who will survive. According to Hickman's research, patients obsessively check for extreme weather, read climate change studies and pursue radical activism. It can be difficult to pin down exactly what climate climate anxiety is and therefore what to do about it. Especially for adults, there's still a stigma in admitting that it's severely affecting your life. 
But therapists report they're grappling with a rise in demand from climates who say climate change is having a profound effect on their be, mental health. What could be and studies that? suggest the angst is increasingly widespread. What Existing could, what, professional methods for dealing with anxiety aren't always suitable in these situations. What could what could be driving it? For the Eliana? counseling community, the situation calls for a new playbook. Also, there's no classic case of climate or eco-anxiety. Oh. Some patients may need to discuss direct experience with climate impacts, such as a flood or wildfire destroying a, a home. Well, that would be traumatic. That would definitely um, be. It's, but it's traumatic no matter how you your home is destroyed. Whatever act of God destroys your home, it's definitely traumatic. That's for sure. Yeah. When psychotherapist Caroline and Hickman. Do you think Do you think the, like, 20,000 news articles about... Yeah. I, climate what, change what could destroying possibly your kids' be driving summer it? camp I, experience. I don't, I don't know where. I guess people are just alert to the news and what's going on. Not definitely that this is being obsessively, obsessively crammed down people's throats as an existential threat. When psychotherapist Caroline Hickman was asked to help a child overcome a fear of dogs, she introduced them to her labradoodle, Murphy. Murph. You get the child to feel confident in relation to the dog and teach the child to manage a dog, she says. You build the skills, build the competence, build the confidence, and then they're less scared of dogs generally. Hmm. Climate anxiety is a different beast, Hickman says. We don't 100% know how to deal with it, and it would be a huge mistake to try to treat it like other anxieties that we are familiar with that have been around for decades. This one is much, comma, much worse. You're, too again, too young, part of the under-40 community. But I can tell you, when ABC made the movie the day after about a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. I was petrified. I was, I was disconsolate. And I can remember very distinctly the conversation I had in my parents' bedroom, sitting on the edge of my parents' bed with my father, talking about my terrible fear that Everyone I know and love would be destroyed in a nuclear war. Now, did ABC do a good service to the world by making a movie that they showed horrifying previews of that haunted my, I don't know, eight-year-old dreams when they showed it in on episodes of Fantasy Island? Probably not super helpful. Probably wasn't super helpful. But what was the advice that my father gave to me? What did he tell me on the edge of the bed? It's all going to be okay. We're all going to die. He did? Yeah. No one gets out alive. Oh, I see what you're saying. No one gets out alive. No one gets out alive. This is, that's, that's, that's the deal. We have, a, we have a finite amount of time on this earth. And if you spend your time afraid of, if you allow your fear of things that you have no control over to dominate your life, then you will not enjoy your life. You will not live your life. You will not do, again, not to fra frame things in a religious sense, but you know, you will not do what you were put on earth to do if if that's what happens. And I just like Bloomberg, boo. I just I, I say unto you, Bloomberg, boo. It's not a dog. It's life. It's life. It's just being alive. Chris, the final item in Facile Files is from The New York Times. Blacks it. Oh. Tired of racism. Black Americans try life in Africa. Mm. And one woman says, in Uganda, she no longer faces, quote, a thousand cuts of racism. She said, for years, she had made accommodations, big and small, to try to control other people's perceptions, smiling to appear non-threatening. By, I mean, you know, I never smile at other people. You don't. I, I don't have to because I'm white. That's right. Smiling to appear non-threatening, buying nicer clothes to avoid being mistaken for a domestic worker, and straightening her hair to be seen as more professional. That's hilarious because... You know, I do all of those things. She knew she had been acquiescing, but she said, I didn't know the extent until I didn't have to do any of that. Africa isn't a refuge for all, though. Anti-LGBTQ sentiment is sweeping across the continent. In Uganda, the Anti-Homosexuality Act enacted last year punishes gay sex with life imprisonment and in some cases death. Yes, it's actually not a utopia over in Africa. Similar bills have been introduced in other African countries such as Ghana and Kenya. So I'm I'm I was a little I actually kind of like this piece and I'm kind of for these people who are like, whatever, like 
go for it. And now my journalistic complaint with the piece is twofold. One is it's like nine people, right? We're not we're not talking about we're not talking. This is sort of like covering the Texas secession movement where it's like Texans are ready to break away from Texas. You're like, how many? It's like nine guys, nine guys are ready to break away and form their own Texas Republic. So I think there's a little of that. But the other part is a Carlsonian deficiency. Why is life nice for Americans in Uganda? Do you know what Uganda's per capita GDP was in 2022? $935. These are achingly, shockingly poor countries. These are astonishingly poor places. The American per capita GDP is, I will, I'll give you the right number, U.S. per capita income, $68,513. So if you are an American, especially if you're a retiree and you have a lot of money, it's the same reason a lot of people move to Mexico or Costa Rica is it's you can live fat. You can live a lush life in a lot of poor places if you have an American level of income. And I think missing part of the missing piece, the, the facility, the facileness in this piece is like, well, yeah, if you're a rich American, you can go and buy a grocery, a, a coin operated grocery cart full of groceries for $100 in Russia. You can live a very nice life in Uganda if you are willing, by the way, in both cases, to sacrifice the rule of law. If you are willing to take an extraordinary risk of going to a less developed country with less rigid with the less rigid enforcement of the rule of law and the possibility that one day someone will come to you and take away all of the things that you love and all of your money and all of your stuff, then you can go do it. Chris, I have to say, we don't have a style section, but I but toyed with the idea and now I'm just gonna throw do it, it in there. Style. Of including a New York Times freestyle. article, I'm freestyling, of including a New York Times article uh, about the appearance of older women, oh. 40 plus women. Not, that's the, not all, you. All over the fashion runways. Maybe there were some 39s, <laughs> some use, usable 39s, um, all over the fashion runways at New York Fashion Week. And I read the article and one woman indicated she uh, appeared on the runway with no makeup, <gasps> which I thought was interesting, actually different. Well, good for so, good for her, good for them, good for um, them. That is in the New York Times. Style, yep. a, a freestyle. Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the articles we can't get out of our heads. And I was scrolling Instagram. Go on. As I often do in the morning. And this article populated... In my Instagram, the lure of divorce. Seven years into my marriage, I hit a breaking point and had to decide whether life would be better without my husband in it. And I love my husband. I have a great husband. But, you know, when you, I think these are kind of the hardest years of marriage when you have little kids and it's not super romantic. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. Okay. See what this woman has to say. She has young kids. Who is this person? Her name is Emily Gould, and I only looked her up after I read the article because this article, the headline is unbelievably mis misleading. I thought this was going to be like a sober-minded assessment of it's really marriage long. is hard. Do you stay in it? What are what are the trade-offs? This is a the article is a long recitation essentially of Emily Gould, the novelist, how she had a mental breakdown. She describes in great detail how she discovered she was manic depressive or bipolar. Oh my um, gosh. And in her mania decided that her husband was the problem. She was very resentful that he was a more successful novelist and writer than she was. Oh boy. And she became an alcoholic and pill popper, she says, and you know, moved into another room in their apartment oh. and had two small kids while all of this was going on. And it is nothing about the trade-offs of marriage is hard. Do you stay in it? What are, you know, what this do is, you do? This is heartbreaking. Um, it's actually a horrible piece. And her husband comes off as like this island of stability in it. And 
it is really a solipsistic wow. and sort of awful piece of writing wow. that is a piece of like, I thought, cultural, a piece of like where we are in the culture. Jeez Louise. Yeah. This- it, is, it is worth reading as a cultural artifact, given that Emily Gould, the writer, and I looked him up, and her husband, Keith Gesson, are a power couple on the New York literary scene, I discovered. And this is who they are. And it's pretty amazing. Oh, and in her mania, she disclosed all of this and and opened a put on a a crowdfunding appeal for her divorce. No. Anyhow, the piece details all of this. It's sort of fascinating to read, but incredibly sad and awful. And this is don't do this. Yeah, don't. It's, um, don't. It, do- it's worth reading. And I will say, Commentary Magazine devoted an entire podcast to the piece, and is worth listening to. Oh my gosh. Come on, New York Magazine. Don't ew, ew. This is this uh, this feels un un inappropriate, unwell. Uh okay, well my obsession is a common one, uh, but it was flagged for me by internet sleuth Nate Moore. I used up my Are these both from New York Magazine? So now I can't read this, but it is a story that was much discussed because I used up my click that is much discussed. So who? what is the name of the woman who wrote this piece? She's somebody's financial. Uh, She's their financial <laughs> advice columnist. Charlotte what? Charlotte Cowles gave $50,000 in a shoebox to somebody who called her and threatened her with Serious reprisals. Ah, uh, yes. On a Tuesday evening this past October, I put $50,000 cash in a shoebox, taped it shut as instructed, and carried it to the sidewalk in front of my apartment. My phone clasped to my ear. Don't let anyone hurt me, I told the man on the line, feeling pathetic. You won't be hurt, he answered. Just keep doing exactly as I say. Three minutes later, a white Mercedes SUV pulled up to the curb. The back window will open, said the man on the phone. Do not look at the driver or talk to him. Put the box through the window. Say thank you and go back inside. The man on the phone knew my home address, my social security number, the names of my family members, and that my two-year-old son was playing in our living room. He told me my home was being watched, my laptop had been hacked, and we were in imminent danger. I can help you, but only if you cooperate, he said. His first orders? I could not tell anyone about our conversation, not even my spouse, or talk to police or a lawyer. Now I know this was all a scam, a cruel and violating one, but painfully obvious in retrospect. Here's what I can't figure out. Why didn't I just hang up and call 911? Why didn't I text my husband or my brother, a lawyer, or my best friend, also a lawyer, or my parents, or one of the many other people who would have helped me? Why did I hand over all that money, the contents of my saving account, savings account, strictly for emergencies without a bigger fight? When I've told people this story, most of them say the same thing. You don't seem like the type of person this would happen to. What they mean is that I'm not senile or hysterical or a rube, but these stereotypes are actually false. Younger adults, Gen Z, Millennials, and Gen X are 34% more likely to report losing money to fraud compared with those over 60s. Over 60. Okay. Just to take a moment and say, is she that gullible? Is, is it possible that she's that gullible or not? And I have no idea. I have no idea. And I don't know anything about this woman. And I'm just saying, if I were her husband, I would say... Let's walk through this again. We lost $50,000. And how, how come again? How, how come again you panicked and went to the bank? Because it's not like she had $50,000 at home in a shoebox. She had to go get the money. And that in the process of getting this money and giving it to these people, you like, so it's just that neither, neither narrative line is good, right? Either... This is an, 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 as they would say in West Virginia, I don't know that I'd have told that one, right? You know why the older people. Yeah, I would be like hiding in shame that I. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have taken this one public if, (laughs) if, if I had actually been duped in this way. But number two, it opens up a bunch of questions about why would you be so vulnerable to this kind of scam or to take a darker, more cynical question. Who's the real scammer here, right? It opens up all of these questions. It's such a weird piece. And I 
I'm 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 obsessed with it only in the sense of what goes into the psychology of writing this? What goes into the psychology of writing a piece such as this? All right. That is also my question about my obsession. Yes. What what's New York Magazine? What's up? Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reviewing our reader mail. And we have a letter from Scott Needham in Boulder, Colorado, who writes, Mr. Steyerwalt, I have this idea that Lippmann's ultimately Wilsonian views on the relationships between and among citizens, government, media are the source of our current viewpoint advocacy journalism politics mess. I'm betting that his writing has been a prime focus in journalism schools for the last century or so. Perhaps you could take some time on wretches to address the influence of Lippmann and his ilk. Regards and happy trails. Walter Lippmann maybe helped stop the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was a big, a bit in terms of career achievements. What's a big achievement? Uh, Nikita Khrushchev read Walter Lippmann's piece that proposed a compromise solution to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that ended up being implemented. So, I've never, I've definitely never written a piece that helped avert. A, a global thermonuclear war. So that's on the that's on the plus side. On the minus side is a thing that I think was true for a lot of Americans, elite Americans after the Second World War, which is the belief in that we could systematize and make new and defeat human nature finally, right? That finally we would be done with human nature because we will have a scientific, we, we will have scientism and order and we will finally have figured everything out and then it will be then it will be good but yes i think the wilsonianism of walter lippman and the end of the nation state and all of that thinking definitely definitely helped us into many misadventures in american life in the 20th and even into the 21st century quite so next up there was a lot of interest in our style section last week about men hiring stylists and we have a note from Max Marshall, who writes, first of all, the neurosurgeon Eliana repeatedly compliments, looks like he's wearing a cream-colored women's hoodie with dress slacks. I have to echo what Chris said. That looks good. Thank but you. anyway, I Thanks. looked at the photos in the Wall Street Journal's article on men's stylists, and what the, while they failed to provide any useful before and after photos, the subjects of the piece look unremarkable after spending a lot. Say word. It seems like the final results could have been achieved for far less money. That is, for free. Don't these highly successful people have friends? How is it possible that a young neurosurgeon or tech industry executive has not even one well-dressed friend willing to give them tips? The only explanation for the exorbitant sums cited in the piece is that these men are paying for something not cheaply replaced. Friends. Couldn't have said it okay. better. Couldn't have said it better myself, I, Mr. Marshall. I'm going, to, I'm going to rebut this. Rebut. Men are not good judges. Okay, I men are not good judges of... What looks good on men. Let, let the women be the judge, okay? You guys take a back seat here. Let us be the judge. Who taught me how to dress? My dad, right? My dad taught me how to dress. And my I've had many bosses and coworkers over the year that you're like, oh, yeah, that looks good. That's right. That That is right. And you just look at, as with most things in life, Right. You get a, a you should you hopefully get a big download of cues from your family and then you just look and see who's doing it. Who's doing it right. Just look at people who are doing it right that you that you like and then emulate what they're doing. And that's true in so many things in in life and social life. Our final note is from Joe Palange Palange. Mm hmm. Joe says, I have a question specifically for Chris. Okay. I have a very basic style and very few actual items of clothing. I just turned 30, and although I think I dress somewhat well, I'm not entirely sure what I'm doing. I always find Chris's riffs on how to dress instructive, which makes me wonder if he'd consider writing a short style guide of his own. Yeah. To illustrate how instructive his guide would, would be, I have one blue suit, but likely could have been saved from falling victim to the light brown shoe trend with his health. <sighs> I have one blue blazer Alas. that I inherited from a deceased grandfather. Is it cut right? Does it look like I'm living in the 70s when I wear it? I literally have no idea. What kind of tweed jacket? What cut should jackets have? Dare I ask elbow patches? Sure. What exactly is an unconstructed jacket, and Don't. how do I make sure that I never own one? 
Are chinos and dress pants the same thing? Pleated or flat? Oxford shirts or dress shirts? When to wear which? Are spread collars just a fad? What materials should any of this be made of? What brands are good? What shoes to wear when? Oxford or derbies? What kind of sunglasses, coats, hats, etc.? What kind of belt to wear with which kind of pants? I mean, seriously, this is why you need a stylist. Uh, let me just very quickly, I'll try to I'll try to zoom through these a little bit. And I would say for young people, eBay is a a is a huge window of opportunity for buying good stuff. There are it's a resource I did not have. And another thing, there's a, there's a company called Studio Suits, <clears throat> and they're out of India. And if you give them your measurements, you can buy a deeply discounted, bespoke kind of suits. I recommend them very highly. I think that's a great way to save a buck. But you don't have to go to thrift stores anymore. You can go on eBay and you can do that. So very quickly going through an unconstructed jacket has no shoulder pads at all. You don't want big shoulder pads, so you look like you were Tammy Faye Baker. You don't want to look like Sally Jesse Raphael with big shoulder pads. But the the construction is that there's a little padding in the shoulder that you want so that it hangs straight. It hangs better. It doesn't slope with your shoulders and look like a cardigan. Not that there's anything wrong with a cardigan. Cardigan can be great, but a cardigan is not a jacket. Chinos are a material, not a style of pant. Pleated or flat depends on whether you like cuffs. If you want cuffs on your pants, you need one pleat. Just one, please. Not two pleats, just one. Oxford shirts or dress shirts. Oxford shirts can be dress shirts. It refers to an open weave material that is beefier and bulkier. It depends on whether how formal you want to be. Spread collars. Spread collars are not a fad, but how wide and how high the collars are are fatty. Oxfords are dirt. What kind of sunglasses, coats, and hats? Spend very little on sunglasses. Spend a lot on a coat, a, co a good winter coat, a, uh, a, a genuine uh, Macintosh coat, for example, is very expensive, but you can wear it every day uh, of the wintertime. And one of the advantages that men have over women, we can wear the same stuff again and again and again. When a woman wears a dress, if she wears it again a month later, people say, oh, that old rag again? We're, we're doing that again? I don't agree with that. But for men, that's why staple goods work. So- I would say on coats, you can invest big. Hats, that's a whole, we'll have to have a whole separate podcast. And what kind of belt to wear with what kind of pants? Match your belt to your shoes or don't match your belt at all and wear a cloth belt or a, a woven belt uh, that's of a, a, a fun or funky style. So either match it to the shoes that you're wearing or just go, if you're being more casual, just do that or take the better way out and go no belt and get suspender buttons sewn in your pants so your pants stay up. Chris. Yes. That brings us to your favorite time of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice. Say it. But as always, please lead by example. Columbia Journalism Review shares with us this piece from, his name is Bill Shanner. And he is a local news columnist and he got can't. So it's uh, his 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 site, his newsletter is called Worcester Sucks and I Love It. Why Communities Need Columnists by a Columnist. He writes, when we think of national columnists, we think of breathless and endless takes, a bloated and exhausting core of self-declared experts. Yes. Perpetuating tribal groupthink. Hopefully no. But the opposite is true for local news. Local columnists usually started as reporters. They tend to know everyone and have a large swath of local history firsthand, maybe even made some. Their voices are informed, earned. Just to say to the Washington Post, to every medium market newspaper, local columnists are great. I worked with Harry Jaffe, who wrote for years at the Washington Post. Local, local columnists. Local columnists are great. That's how Dave Barry started out. Like, I, I agree and I credit this guy for taking matters into his own hands and starting his blog. Chris, my favorite item of the week was a New York Times piece on Harvard's reputation and the damage it has sustained and whether it can recover. And it was pegged to the distribution of a grotesquely anti-Semitic cartoon by a Harvard student group and a Harvard faculty group that was taken down amid outcry. And I do notice that that cartoon was also covered 
in the Wall Street Journal, more attentiveness in these big papers to what's happening on campus. I think they've gotten the message that Word. this stuff becomes big national news. But I loved this. This piece is pretty hard hitting. And I just want to read the top of it because it's very well done. When 70 university presidents gathered for a summit at the end of January, the topic on everyone's mind was the crisis at Harvard. The hosts of the summit treated the university battered by accusations of coddling anti-Semitism as a business school case study on leadership in higher education, complete with a slide presentation on its plummeting reputation. The killer slide. Boeing and Tesla have similar levels of negative buzz as Harvard. In other words, Harvard, a centuries-old symbol of academic excellence, was generating as much negative attention as an airplane manufacturer that had a door panel drop from the sky and a car company with a mercurial chief executive and multiple recalls. Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, a professor at Yale School of Management, organized the summit. Despite nearly 400 years of history, the value of brand equity is nowhere near as permanent as Harvard trustees think it is, he said in an interview. There used to be a term in the industry of something being the Cadillac of the industry. Well, Cadillac itself is, you know, sadly not the Cadillac of the industry anymore. Word. Vicious. And the the reporter goes on to say, there was a hint of a more assertive approach by Harvard on Monday when the university announced it was investigating, quote, deeply offensive anti-Semitic tropes posted on social media by pro-Palestinian student and faculty groups. The groups had posted or reposted material containing an old cartoon of a puppeteer, his hand marked by a dollar sign inside of a star of David, lynching Muhammad Ali oh and Gamal Abdel Nasser. Harvard took the action at a time when the House Committee on Education and the Workforce has begun to scrutinize its record on anti-Semitism. And it goes on to say, to ask the question, will Harvard be able to arrest the reputational damage it is sustaining, noting that applications were down 17 percent this year? Really? Yes. Huh. Um, I can read that part. There's already evidence of reputational damage, a 17% drop in the number of students applying to Harvard for early admission decisions this year. Other Ivy League schools saw increases. Huh. Fascinating piece. Highly recommend it. And that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Yay.